0: All right, and if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. And you know, last week, we we looked at, we considered John the Baptist's ministry, and, and John the Baptist was shining his light on the light. We said that's kind of odd. You wouldn't do that in a theatrical production. Nobody wants to see the, the fat, overweight, bald guy with the dad bod behind the spotlight getting spotlighted. That usually is not the person you spotlight, but in this case, that's... Uh, John the Baptist took his light and he put it on the spotlight, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And you know, even though we he identified Jesus Christ to the masses, and we're going to learn more about John's ministry as we go forward in the book of John, John the Baptist's ministry, as we go forward in the book of John. We're going to see, and what we saw last week was one of the saddest, most tragic passages in all the Bible. Let me read it to you again. This is John chapter 1. Verses ten through eleven, he says, he was in the world, speaking of Jesus, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Can you imagine the creator of the world stepping into his creation? He should have been received with applause that didn't die down for hours, or days, or weeks, or months, or years. He should have been lauded as the savior of the world, as the creator of the world, as the most unique and special individual that's ever existed, and yet he came into his world, came into the world, there was divine prophecy all throughout thousands of years. God had been trying to communicate, especially with his people, but also through his people to Gentile nations, that he was gonna solve their sin problem. He was going to send a savior, he predicted when the Messiah would come. He predicted where the Messiah would be born. And he predicted what the Messiah would do when he got here. And all of these things went unheeded and unnoticed. They wouldn't take it in. They wouldn't know him. They didn't take any effort to try to understand if he was the one. And they rejected him. They flat out rejected The very one that God had been communicating for thousands of years in the Old Testament that he was going to send. And Jesus Christ did everything that God the Father said he was going to do. And he also sent a a prophet by the name of John the Baptist to specifically look at him and identify him. And we're going to see throughout chapter uh, chapter one of John that John the Baptist did just that. That's the bad news. We're gonna to get to look at some good news this morning because not all people rejected Jesus Christ. Many people reject Jesus Christ. In fact, we learn in Matthew that the way to heaven is narrow. The, the, the road to hell is broad, right? So that still bears true today, but he's gonna make this promise in verse 12 that's very encouraging. And what he's gonna say is this, but as many as received him, in contrast to those who had rejected him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, he uses this word receive here. It means to take in whatever manner, to, to accept or to receive. And so in contrast to the group mentioned last week in verse 11, his own, the Jewish nation, who rejected him, some people did receive the light. In fact, some people from the Jewish nation, John is a, an apostle writing this. He was a Jew. He received the light. He received Jesus Christ, but some did not. And you know, one of the things that's so awesome about this verse is though his own rejected him. Notice this phrase, but as many as. And what that does is it opens it up not only to the nation of, of, of the Jewish nation, but also to Samaritans who were what? Half Jew and half Gentile, and then full Gentiles. It opens it up to everybody. This opportunity To become a child of God is now opened to everybody. And that is just really incredible. But, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, and we'll get into this, but how does one receive him? It sounds like a good deal, becoming a child of God. That's, I I want that. (laughs) But how do you receive Christ? How do you, uh, what do you must, uh, what must a person do um, to be described as having received him? Well, you know, what's so interesting is many people will will use this word receive or another synonym that we hear a lot is accept, and we hear this a lot at the fair, and you hear this a lot when you talk to people about going to heaven. You know what does God require of someone to go to heaven? And people will say, "Well, you got to accept Christ." You'll, you'll hear that, or you got to receive Christ. You know that phrase in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with that phrase. Obviously, we're seeing it right here in John 1:12. It's biblical. But when you dig and you prod a little bit deeper, what do you mean when you say you've got to accept Christ? How do you do that? And do you know many people will give many different answers, but they don't give the answer found in John They they They'll give a ton of answers. In fact, what ends up happening is they'll use a biblical terminology, which is receive Christ, and then they'll define it with unbiblical cliches. And I could just go down the list of what people have told me over the years. What does it mean to receive Christ? What does it mean to accept Christ? People will say, you got to ask for forgiveness. Well, you know what? That's not even found in the Bible. You can't even find that phrase in the Bible, ask for forgiveness in order to be saved. That might blow your mind if you've never heard that before, because it's so ingrained in our culture. It's so ingrained in our thinking. That's not how you receive Christ. Some will say, oh, you got to ask Jesus into your heart. Again. Another phrase, very familiar in our culture. We've heard it a million times, not found in the Bible. That's not how you receive Christ. You'll hear people say, you got to pray the sinner's prayer. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to walk an aisle. You got to, by the way, there's no sinner's prayer found in the Bible. There's not even one instance of someone leading someone in prayer to get saved in the Bible. Can't find it. It's That may shock you if you never heard that before. This is all Christian cliches that were used. They just wash over us constantly, that's not what John says is how you receive Jesus Christ. He's going to define it for us in this verse. In fact, the Bible describes salvation as a gift, a free gift. And this is where the word receive actually fits really well with this picture. Because every gift that you've ever gotten, in order to benefit from it, you had to receive it. You know, it was like when I was a little kid, five, six years old, you know how this is, parents, we, could, we would not let our parents sleep in on Christmas morning, no way. In fact, many times we would try to get them up as soon as we woke up, it didn't matter, 3.30, no sweat, it's Christmas morning, they need to get up, right? We got all these gifts. You know what I never did as a five or six-year-old or even 45-year-old person on Christmas morning? I've never just looked at the, the gifts on the bottom of the tree and said, wow, that's awesome, and then go about my day. <laughs> because you don't benefit from a gift until you do what? Receive it, right? This is kind of the picture given in terms of receiving a gift. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And you know, by very definition, a gift is not something you do something for. You don't deserve or earn it. Although we like to say that to our parents, if you don't behave, we're gonna take away Christmas gifts. And how many times have we done that, parents? We don't do it because it's not an earned or deserved deal. It's a Christmas gift. And you know, I always joked about it, and this is not true, my mom's in the audience there, but but I always joke about this, That my my parents bought me a bicycle for Christmas when I was five years old. And I loved it. I rode it everywhere. And then when I turned 30, they sent me an invoice in the mail for the the bicycle. And that's a lie. She didn't do that, actually. Um, My dad did. No, just kidding. (laughs) Nobody did that. Because if they would have done that, then guess what? It was never a gift. It was a cosmic, you know, layaway plan that I, you know... (laughs) I had to, to, you know, I got the benefit of it. I paid for it later. For a gift to remain a gift, it means that God will never require anything from you to get it or to maintain it. That's why that very, the third word, I was gonna say the very first word, the third word in this verse up here, grace is so key to understanding. And we're gonna see, even in this passage this morning, a lot of intertwined concepts by faith, grace. You've got to save your who doesn't just dole out grace once in a while. He doesn't just, oh, okay, they're behaving good. In fact, behavior has nothing to do with grace. People try to put that together. He doesn't just dole out grace. He is grace. He's full of grace, but he's also full of truth. And so we're going to see how those things come together. But what does John say? What does John, how would John answer the question, how do you receive Christ? What's the biblical answer? It's right here in John 1:12. It's when you believe in his name. Look at verse 12 again. Let's read it. But as many as received the, uh, him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. That's how you receive Christ. It's when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you believe in him, when you rely upon him, for salvation, That's how you receive Christ, not all these other unbiblical cliches. We need to knock those out of our thinking and get back to the basics of what the Bible teaches, and that's we're trusting in Christ. The word believe is going to be used a 100 times in this book. We said that last week, but it's going to be used 100 times, so we'll get this definition of lot. It means to have faith in. It, it means to trust in. It. it meant to be firmly persuaded as to something and then relying upon it as a result. It's, uh, in other words, uh, you are just completely resting on what Jesus Christ accomplished. If we were to verbalize it this way, if it, and I don't believe this happens, but, you know, people use this as an example. If you get to heaven, you die, you get to heaven, and God says, why should I let you in? Again, I don't think, that's not a biblical concept. It's, it's all settled before then. But if he were to say it, your answer could be it's because of that man seated at your right hand. With the scars in his wrist and the scars in his feet and the wound in his side, if he's not good enough and what he accomplished is not good enough, then I don't have a chance. But I'm trusting in what he did for me alone. That's our answer. That's what salvation is. Because Christ screamed from the cross, his last breath, it is finished, paid in full. And either he told the truth or he's lying. I'm banking that he's telling the truth. And I'm banking that I can trust him alone for my salvation. That's what the word believe means. And now he uses this phrase to believe in his ma- name. Interesting phrase. We don't use that a lot because it's it's kind of confusing in our culture. Not to the Jewish culture. They understood this phrase. And it means that not only have you trusted in the person, but you've also trusted in what that person has done or accomplished. In other words, you're trusting in the person and what he is known for. You know, I could mention famous men from history, and you would automatically understand who the person was and what they're known for. If I mentioned Adolf Hitler, immediately you know. Nazi Germany killed six million Jews. Immediately you would associate what he's known for. Abraham Lincoln. Lots of things he's kind of known for, but leading the nation through the Civil War, signing the Emancipation Proclamation, there are things that he's known for. This is what is communicated in the concept. It was a common way in that day of communicating, trusting in the entire person and what he has done for you. And so in this case, to believe it or to rely upon the name of Jesus Christ is to believe or rely upon him and his finished work for our salvation. You know, I've had people over the years when I've communicated this message, they say, you know, you just view Jesus as your crutch. You know, you, Jesus is just a crutch for you. And I said, no, man, you, you're missing. It's worse than that. Jesus is my stretcher. Like a crutch implies like I'm, I'm resting some weight on my foot. Nope. <laughs> you, missed, you missed what I was saying. In fact, that's you and I there laying in the stretcher. This is Jesus Christ and his finished work. And that's what salvation's all about. You know, we're gonna get off of our feet. We're gonna quit trusting in ourselves. We're gonna look to a day 2,000 years ago, not tomorrow, not 20 years from now. We're gonna look to a day 2,000 years ago that happened in human history, an objective message of when the God man, the special unique one that we're reading about in this book, died for your sins and rose again. And you know, one of the things that's tragic uh, when you talk to people, especially at the fair, is they understand that Jesus died for sins, but many of them never realized that Jesus died for their sins. Do you know that this morning, as you sit there individually bringing your own, whatever, experiences, trials, struggles into this room this morning, that 2,000 years ago, a Savior paid the penalty for your sins? Individually? Every single one of them? You say, man, I don't deserve that. Pfft, amen. I, hallelujah chorus. I don't either. None of us do. But he did it because he loves you with the love that you can't even measure, that you've never experienced before on a human level, maybe in bits and pieces, but not like the way he loves. Not like that. And that's that's our Jesus, you know, and that's <laughs> that's why he's so amazing. That's why we want to behold him in this study. Now, verse 12 is going to tell us that, that there's a result. When you believe in his name, there's a result. Something happens to you. I love that picture, by the way. What a cute little guy. But you know, the result is this. He gave them the right to become children of God. When, when you believe something incredible happens, we, we don't even uh, maybe even appreciate this at the time, but you become a child of God. That's that is a big statement. In fact, it says that he gave. It, it means he gave of his own accord and with goodwill. This is something that God will freely give to anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ. Now, why can God give it freely? Why can he give this benefit freely? Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it in full. It's been paid for. So now he can offer it to anyone who believes in him. He can offer it to him freely. And, and notice The language there, he gave the right. It means permission, authority, right, liberty, or power to do something. It involves ability, power, and strength. This means that you don't have to beg your way into heaven. This means you don't have to crawl on your hands and knees up a mountain over rough terrain to impress God. God is not impressed with you. He is impressed with his son. And he says, if you will trust in what he is impressed with, you're going to become a child of God. It's as simple as that. It is simple, basic, easy. In fact, notice how this language matches with Ephesians 2.8.9. It's grace. It's free gift. He gave freely. And what did he give those? The right to become children of God. He gave you the authority to do it. Now, notice those who believe become children at a point in time. What it means is they're not always children of God. We have this misconception in our culture, it tends to make us feel better, especially when we're talking about certain issues. And we'll often say, we're all God's children. <laughs> and they usually say it that way, like, oh, we're all God's children. <laughs> Do you know that's not true? That's not biblically true. It's, it's a lie of the devil. It's to desensitize people to think that in some way they've got a right standing with God when they don't. We are all God's creation. But notice what this verse says. You have to become a child of God. There's a moment in time you have to become a child of God. And, you know, I don't care if your granddaddy was a pastor or your pappy was a pastor or your uncle was a pastor. We have people tell us that all the time. Oh, I think I'm okay because my grandfather was a pastor and my dad was a pastor. And I'm thinking to myself, that ain't going to get you in heaven. I'm, I'm a pastor and that's not even going to get me into heaven. You know what I mean? This is, this is what we're talking about. It, it, there's a point in time that you become a child of God. In fact, look at this. This is just kind of one little subtle verse, John eight forty four. 44, not so subtle, as he's basically, you know, try, in an argument with the Pharisees. And this is what he says to them. You are of your father, the devil. Now, these were the most religious people in the day. These were the, the ones that knew the word of God, knew the Old Testament. He says, you're of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And what that tells us is simply this when we are born physically into this world, we're a child of Satan. Now, you know, go look at that picture of the kid. I mean, he looks really sweet and cute. Every baby looks sweet and cute. Well, not everyone, but, you know, your own do. If we're being honest, your own always looks sweet and cute. Let's, we'll put it that way. But there are some faces only a mother could love, you know, I just, if we're being honest with ourselves. But the point is, I know, I should stop right there. All right. The point is this, is when you're born, when we're born, we're born as a, a, a Satan is our father. We're on the, we're born on the wrong side of the tracks. We're born into the wrong family. And this is why Jesus is gonna make such a big issue with Nicodemus in John chapter three when we get there. You've gotta be born again. Your, your first birth is not going to get you into heaven. It doesn't matter if you were born in a Christian family. It doesn't matter if your grandpappy was a priest. It doesn't matter. Those things do not matter. Each one of us, in fact, they, they often say God has no spiritual grandchildren. That's true. He's only got spiritual children because each one of us need to be born again. In fact, he goes on and uses this word children. It's the Greek word "technot." It means to bring forth or to bear children, to be an offspring of human parents. And, and, you know, children are from biological parents. It usually indicates immediate physical descendant or at least a sharing of nature. And this is what is being confirmed here. So in contrast to the Jewish nation who did what? They love to focus on their physical birth. Their, their entire trust in terms of getting into the kingdom was well I'm Abraham Isaac and Jacob's son so I'm in right and they would trace their lineage they would they were proud of that it existed in the temple they had genealogies that dated back you know thousands of years recorded in the temple and they took great pride in their physical heritage but this birth that we're talking about right here in John 1, 12, that John is writing about that he's going to expand on in verse 13, we're talking about a spiritual birth. We're talking about a fresh start at a moment in time when you hear the gospel and you put your trust in the Savior who died for you and rose again. That's what we're talking about here. And this is why Jesus in his ministry always makes salvation a birth issue, not a behavior issue. Religion wants to make salvation a behavior issue. You have to perform or behave a certain way to get to heaven. This is a very common way of thinking. It's across the world. I've talked to people in different countries. It's all similar. We're all wired to think this way, that there's something I must do to get to heaven. And the Bible wants you to know God has already done something for you to get you to heaven, to provide really a solution to two problems we have. Two problems is what each one of us born into this world have. We have a debt penalty that's only paid through eternal death in the lake of fire. It can only be paid in that way. We have a debt penalty. It's death. We have a second problem. We don't have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness to get to heaven. Now, religion's going to say, well, yeah, if you just try your hardest, God's going to grade on a curve. God is not going to grade on a curve. He requires perfection. He requires perfect Righteousness. And before you get up and leave and say, wow, I'm never going to get there. I've got good news for you. Because not only did Jesus die for you and pay your sin debt, but when you trust in Christ, Jesus's righteousness is credited to you. You can be found in perfect righteousness before the judge of the universe. Not because he's doing something underhanded. He's letting you into heaven through the back door. No, we can burst the front doors of heaven wide open because of what Jesus Christ did for us and that's the only reason. And that's where he takes care of all this so it has to be a new birth. It has to be something brand new that God does himself. And that's why verse 13 is going to be so key. We're going to really kind of get into the spiritual birds and bees. You know, how does how does this birth happen? You know, that's a fun question to ask answer parents when your kids ask you that. How do kids happen? How do babies, you know, like ooh <laughs> Go talk to your mom about that. You know, I'm going to be out in the yard for an hour. You know, But the spiritual birds and the bees, we see this in verse 13. He says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This word born means to beget when spoken of men. You'll see that in the genealogies of of the New New Testament, Old Testament, to beget, but it's spoken of to bear children when spoken of women. And we're going to see that this birth is brought about by God himself. He's going to contrast these natural births. This is what Nicodemus is going to have a struggle with in chapter three, is understanding this concept. Although Jesus is going to point out, you should understand this, Nicodemus. You're a teacher of the Old Testament. This this is something you should know. We'll, We'll get there when we get to three. But in connecting this with verse 12, the new, new birth spoken of is when one trusts in Jesus Christ. And as we'll learn further in chapter 3, it's a birth from above. And this is the birth that every man, woman, and child need in order to spend eternity with God. And the great news about it is you don't have to run 50 laps around the church, you don't have to run a mile under seven minutes, you don't have to do 100 push ups in 60 seconds to get to heaven. All the work has been done for you. Will you trust in Christ alone? Are you confident? and persuaded that what he accomplished for you is enough. And this is really the point of this verse. This is why John 3.3, Jesus answered him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot get in unless you're born again. This is why Titus 3.5, using some different terminology, but I think still talking about the, the spiritual birth He says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration. There's that that birth concept there and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Both of those phrases, by the way, because of the grammar, describe the same event. The renewing of the Holy Spirit and this regeneration are the same thing. And see, the problem with religion is they often believe that physical birth somehow secures one position of favor. With God. And this is why you've got religions like, uh, like Muslims. How do you grow the Muslim faith? You give birth to more children. That's it, because when, you're, when a child is born in a Muslim household, they're Muslim. When a child's born in a Catholic household, they're Catholic. And it's, it's a physical birth concept with many religions. By the way, some Protestants even believe this. Uh, it's not like we're, we're in the clear. I could even say even more. Some Bible churches believe this. This is the thought in the pew. Is that somehow I'm born, you know, I was born in that church, I was raised in that church, I got baptized in that church, I got married in that church, and thus I'm saved. Well, using that same logic, all of us were born in a hospital, but it doesn't make us a doctor. You know, I mean, it's just, it doesn't, you have to become a doctor. Just like if you're born in this church, if you're born at Grace Community Fellowship, we got little kids in here that were, they were born while their parents attended here. It doesn't make them saved at some point in time, they have to put their personal trust in Jesus Christ as well. And so John is going to provide some clarity for us in verse 13. He's going to tell us how not to be born again so that we don't mix it up. And what he's going to say is this, as we go through verse 13, he's going to say, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. How do you not become a child God? Here's a quick list. It's not of blood. It's not your physical relationships. It's not your physical heritage. You know, you can't become a member of God's family just because you're a member of another physical family. That's not how this works. And so he wants that to be clear. He says, not of the will of the flesh. Will means, uh, it, it expresses an inclination of pleasure towards something that's liked, that which pleases and creates joy. You know, just because someone has pleasant feelings toward God doesn't mean they're saved. Just because someone's got a picture of Jesus on their wall at home doesn't mean they're saved. Just because someone's got a Bible on their coffee table that's collecting dust because it's never been opened doesn't mean they're saved. Just because they like God or like Jesus or, you know, put a thumbs up on someone's post that says something positive about Jesus, it doesn't mean they're saved. It's not through human will. having a pleasant desire for God doesn't affect the new birth. And we've got to understand that. The third thing he says, it's not of the will of man. Now, some of your versions might say not of a husband's will. And I'll tell you why sometimes that translation is put in there. But the phrase basically has the same meaning as the previous phrase, but it could also be a subtle, nuanced reference to this patriarchal culture. In other words, it doesn't even matter, you know, what the leader of the family wants for you. You know, and that's true. Of, I think every family in here has kids. We want our kids to trust in Christ themselves, not only for salvation, but to do that ongoing in their life. Because we know a life lived in carnality for our kids is going to be a miserable life. You cannot be happy in this life when you are out of fellowship with the Lord. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in Christ, you are not now wired to enjoy that stuff. You may enjoy it for a season. As Moses says uh, in in the Psalms, that sin has pleasure for a season. It does. But then it's got a big pile of you-know-what on the back end. And that's the problem with sin. There's always consequences. It always plays itself out that way. So not even the leader of your family has say-so in your spiritual birth. This would have been huge. By the way, infant baptisms nailed right there. It doesn't matter what your parents do for you. It matters what you will do with the Son of God. When presented with the gospel, not what your parents do for you. And so John clears up the new birth here. But before he goes on with the rest of his gospel account, I love John. I, I look forward to meeting him one day. I love Paul. I look forward to meeting him one day. But what I love often about these men is, is there, uh, as I feel like they're starting a flow of thought in their gospel, as they go on, they, they oftentimes get distracted by Jesus Christ. What a great problem to have. I've already said all these wonderful things about him in verses one through five. And, you know, for the average person, it's like, oh, that's enough. We kind of got in some really good descriptions of Jesus. Now John is just like, oh, yeah, let me tell you some more. (laughs) Oh, yeah, let me tell you a little bit more about this guy. And that's what we're going to get into Uh, in verse 14. And it's almost like before we get on this roller coaster ride that is the life of Christ, that's exciting. And if you don't like roller coasters, this is a bad example for you, those of us that do. It's like you're pumped, right? This, This right here, verse 13, is like before you leave the station, what do they do? They check the, the handrail one more time. Make sure you don't go flying out. It's like John's checked the handrail, and now we're rolling down the hill. We're, we're getting ready for this roller coaster ride. But he's going to describe Jesus Christ here uh, one more time as we get into verses 14 through 18. We're just going to cover verse 14 this morning because it's loaded. It says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, we saw the emphasis of the word in one was really on his deity, right? He, in the beginning was the word. It means he always existed in the past. And the word was with God. It means he was in complete fellowship with God, the Father. And the word was God. He himself, the son, was always God. He didn't become God. This is what we saw in verse 1. Here, the emphasis is going to be on his humanity. This is is what made Jesus Christ the most unique person who ever walked the face of the earth. And we're going to see when when John says, and we beheld his glory, there's a lot packaged in that word. And and I think we'll understand it when we get there. So he said to have done two things here. The first thing is he became flesh. And the idea is that he became, he began to be... uh, he began to be flesh at a point in time. He came into existence as flesh at, an, uh, at a specific point in time. John, again, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is very careful with his wording here. He doesn't say he became man. He doesn't say that he took a body, but he rather he became flesh. Very important. And you think, well, what's the difference there? It's different when you've got heresy rising up in Ephesus and Asia Minor when John is writing this. There was a heresy that found its development there called Docetism, which taught that Jesus was fully God, but he was not really man. They taught that his humanity was some kind of phantom appearance, like a hologram almost. They had this weird distinction. And John's like, no, he became flesh, (laughs) flesh, just like you and me. That means Jesus sweat. That means, means Jesus bled. That means Jesus got tired. That means Jesus wept. And we saw, we'll see record of that in the book of John. That means Jesus's hair grew long and he needed to trim his beard and his hair, just like the rest of, well, not the women in the room, but just like the rest of us guys, right? Jesus was, a, was fully God and fully man. This is what John is describing here. In fact, uh, we get uh, a, another Uh, Just understanding that in Philippians 2.7, right? Where, uh, in fact, let's go there. I thought I had that on my slide, but I don't. Uh, Let's go to Philippians 2.7, where he words it this way. And and again, it's just in in, in total union with what John records here. But Philippians 2.7, it says, But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming, in the likeness of men. You know, the good news about Jesus Christ is when God said the penalty or the wages for sin is death, Jesus wasn't just a hologram pretending to die. He was had a human body that died, that paid the very penalty that you and I deserve to pay. So that's the good news of having the body. In fact, at the incarnation, the birth of Mary, uh, the birth of Jesus to Mary in Bethlehem, the word became something. I, th- I want you to think about this. He became something that he had never been before. That's mind-blowing. To do something that he had never done before, he was God indwelling a human body. There's Philippians 2.7. Made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And so we just read about believers becoming children of God, and this is all made possible by the Son of God becoming flesh first. That's what needed to happen in order to allow us to trust in a Savior who died for us. And so you can see the importance there. So he became flesh. He also did something else we see in verse 14. This is a very unique wording that John puts together. It says that he dwelt among us. Now, to the average reader, it just means that, oh, he lived on earth, right? And we're like, oh, that, oh yeah, we, we know that already. Really fascinating because the word dwelt means to encamp, to pitch a tent, or to tabernacle. And so the son of God literally set up camp in the world's uh, campground. Now to a Jewish mind, this is what's really fascinating about this word. The verb could have easily evoked the concept of the tent or tabernacle in the wilderness in the old Testament, or the divine presence, the Shekinah glory revealed himself. And the very thing that often Jews would look back to is like a special and unique occurrence uh, occurrence in their history, God tabernacling among them. You remember that story in the wilderness, 40 years, they would set up the tabernacle. And as soon as they did, the, the glory of the Lord would burst forth out of the Holy of Holies. And they would say, wow, God's pleased with us. His glory is here. And then they would pack up shop. And, and God would begin to lead them in dark. And what would he do? He'd give them a pillar of fire so they could see their way. And then as they traveled during the day, he would bring in the clouds. <laughs> That's nice on a sunny day in Georgia. You kind of get that, that one little cloud blocking the sun. You're like, oh, heaven. And then a second later, oops, okay, I'm back to the devil went down to Georgia, I guess. So uh, it's getting hot again. you know. But, but God would, would walk them through the desert with a cloud over them. This just these unique ways of caring. This possibly could have conjured up, at least for John's Jewish readers, that the same Shekinah glory that was in the wilderness now embodied a human body and was among us. It's I mean, it's mind blowing to think of Jesus Christ that way. You know, the Lord's tent site was not some far off place, you know, up on the hill for away from everybody else, it was right in the middle. Of the action. You can see that he dwelt among us. And I love that about our God. He's approachable. He condescends. He's available. These these kind of things that picture. By the way, it's the very definition of what. Remember Isaiah 7:14 in this version shall shall conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call him what? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. That's exactly what we're seeing here in John chapter 1. And then here's one of my favorite parts of this verse, because he says, and I, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And so now he describes his and his companions response to the word's unique presence. Beheld, this word beheld means to view attentively. I want you to think about what they're, they're viewing attentively here to contemplate, indicating a sense of, wondering consideration involving a careful and deliberate vision, which interprets its object. It, it means that they could not take their eyes off of Jesus Christ. I love that picture. They're mesmerized by him. You know, as a kid, I used to wonder about, well, when I go to heaven, am I just gonna sit on a cloud and play a harp, and am I gonna be bored after one day? I, I am here to tell you, I don't know the specifics, I don't know how it's all going to play out, but you will never tire of Jesus Christ. You will never get bored with Jesus Christ. You will never stop being mesmerized by him and who he is and what he accomplished for you. I want to encourage you with that. You might be playing a harp too. I don't know, but you're not going to get tired of Jesus Christ. And this is what they're saying. The the implication is they couldn't take their eyes off him because he was impressive. They just couldn't get enough. In fact, it's really interesting. This word is used over 20 times in the New Testament. 10 of those times is found in John's writings. John kind of loved Jesus Christ. (laughs) He kind of did, I'd say. And we know Jesus loved him. Seven times used in the book of John, three times used in the book of John. One of the things that you'll see, um, this word, there's some synonyms in the New Testament this word, interestingly enough, is kind of distinguished even from the synonyms because it indicates that this, this gaze, this looking at is, is longer, warmer, more intimate. That's kind of what this word draws out. And although there's a different word in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we, we have a synonym here, which is interesting because it says, but we all with an unveiled face Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Look at the connection to the glory of the Lord there. And in our passage in John, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. And so John, just enjoying Jesus Christ, beholding Jesus Christ, being memorized, mesmerized by Jesus Christ. And what we learn from Paul's writing is that when you behold the Lord, when you take him in, when you're occupied with Jesus Christ, guess what happens? Spiritual growth. We're all bent out of shape on spiritual growth. I had to get my morning devotion in. I got to spend an hour in prayer. I got to do this. I got to to witness to four people a day. I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to. Where's the I got to in 2 Corinthians 3.18? And I'm not saying to be lazy. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying start with the foundation. Start where it starts. Enjoy Jesus Christ. Be mesmerized by Jesus Christ. And then respond to opportunities that God gives you to serve others from there. But don't leave that out. You know, some Christians, man, I, you know, ah, wow, myself included. It's like we, we're, we, we fit more in the Winnie the Pooh series as Eeyore than we do Winnie the Pooh. And we just walk around life like, oh, this stinks, this trial, I can't find my tail, blah, 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 blah. And Winnie the Pooh is like, man, as long as I got honey, life is good, Right. And, and it's like that with Jesus Christ. As long as I got Jesus Christ, life is good. There's nothing wrong with life. He can take me through anything. Now, there are things in life that aren't good. Trust me, I get that. I'm not trying to minimize grief and heartache and trials. That's, that's true for all of us. But you know what? We've got a Savior that wants to take your hand through it all. And he's good. And he's worth being occupied with so what specifically did John and his companions behold? We'll go back to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory. That's interesting. Um, not only that, but you see, it's not a typo there. I actually put the word the in there. That's in, there in the Greek. It's, it's designed to distinguish that or emphasize his glory, right? It's not in the English because that reads clunky, his the glory. That just doesn't make sense. But what is glory? Well. Glory, interestingly enough, means to think or to suppose. That's what the word actually means. It primarily means thought or opinion, and in a secondary sense, it reflected one's reputation, their praiseworthiness, or their honor. Now, the disciples saw Jesus' glory, his reputation, his praiseworthiness really clearly at the transfiguration. We find that in Matthew 17. John was there for that, he was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ manifested glory. And we see that in Matthew 17. But you know, they also witnessed his glory through his life, through his miracles, through his death, through his resurrection. And guess what? They realized that this high opinion they had of Jesus Christ, his glory and and reputation was as a direct result of his fellowship with the Father. That's what connects it in verse 14. We beheld his glory, The glory as of the only begotten of the father, the unique one in relationship to the father. That's why he's so cool. (laughs) That's why his reputation is so incredible. That's why he's praiseworthy because of his complete, utter fellowship with the father at all points in his life. We're gonna see that developed in the book of John. As Jesus said, the things that I say, I don't say them unless I hear my father say them. The things that I do, I don't do them unless the father wants me to do them. You're going to see this dependence, ironically, of the son of God on God the father all throughout his human life. Only begotten, again, describes a unique one of a kind, one only of a class or kind. He became flesh, but he was always a unique son of God. Again, see chapter one, verse one. And so his glory or his reputation of praiseworthiness was on the same level as the Father. Now that would have been mind-blowing for the average Jew. They would have looked at that verse and said, blasphemy, stone them. (laughs) No one is equal to God unless they are God. And the problem is they never considered that Jesus was God. Because that would have been a true statement had they considered that. And he is God. He's always been God. And so he's uniquely identified here as the only begotten son. We're going to learn more about that in verse 18, because Jesus the son actually declared or revealed God the father. He's going to say in John 14, if you've seen him, Jesus, then you've seen the father because he revealed him so clearly in his life. And so let's build on this concept of reputation. Again, what was Jesus's glory or reputation? Well, the verse tells us this is his reputation, full of grace and truth. What a great reputation! Oh, there's that guy over there. Man, he's full of grace and truth. What a what a great thing to have on your tombstone, right? Wow, he was a man. He was a woman. Here's a woman who was full of grace and truth. Unfortunately, I don't think we could say that honestly about anybody else but Jesus Christ. Uh, full here means to be complete means to be fully covered, to be abounding or perfect. It wasn't that Jesus barely scraped out grace and truth. It was He was overflowing with it. Just like we're going to learn in John 7, that's the design of the Spirit of God's ministry And each one of us is to be a river of living water that just overflows and spills out on people. When we're walking by means of the Spirit, our life can have this effect on other people as well. We can be a blessing. We can overflow with living water. But he did this all the time, this is why Colossians two nine says, "For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, all the fullness of the Godhead in a human body that was your Savior Jesus Christ. This is who John can 't take his eyes off of, and you can understand why. by the way, if we were teaching Colossians, what does two ten say, and you 've been made full in him." <laughs> Our connection to Jesus Christ actually fills us up as well with this opportunity. But let's keep going in John. Grace means that which causes joy, pleasure, gratification, favor, or acceptance. It's a favor done without expectation of return. We like to define it as unmerited or undeserved favor. It's the absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, finding in its only motive the bounty and benevolence of the giver. That's a quote from somebody else. I don't talk that way. But I I like the way it's worded. It's freely, free expression, the loving kindness of God to men finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. That means he gives because of who he is, not because of who you are or who you promise to be. It's because of him. It's all found in his character. Jesus was full of that. And here's a unique man who is completely occupied with the good of others, whose genuine kindness exuded from every pore of his body. And I'm just going to tell you, we ain't never met anyone like that. He's unique that way. Now, we might have seasons or periods or times where we experience that from others, but not in the consistency that Jesus Christ exuded. Could you imagine waking up as the apostles did with Jesus Christ every morning, and he is the same, consistent, emotionally stable, loving, more interested in you and what's going on with your life than he is with what's going on in his? And you know what? He had a lot of burdens, didn't he? But the Old Testament testified he was a man of sorrows. But when he got around other people because he was in fellowship with his father, he could pour himself out for everyone at every time, regardless of what was going on. What an amazing person. Aren't you glad those of you that have trusted him for salvation, you're going to spend eternity with him? I always wondered, how is Jesus going to give me personal time? Like, like, even as a pastor, I go to the back, and I feel like I only talk to five people every Sunday. Like, I want to talk to more, right? And here's Jesus. There's going to be millions upon millions of people in heaven. And how is he going to make time for each one of us and make us feel personally involved? I don't know, but he's going to do it. That's awesome. You don't have to take a line for Jesus. You are not gonna have to send him a text and make sure it's an okay time to come over. He's going to be there, and he's going to be available to you. I, don't, I can't fathom a person like that. That's who Jesus Christ is. And not only that, but he's full of truth. It means unveiled reality, lying at the basis and agreeing with an appearance, the veritable essence of matter. And so here's a unique man completely occupied with reality and truth, but not in a cold-hearted robotic way. I've been around people who are occupied with truth, and it's generally a miserable experience. If you've ever had a boss like that, you know, it's like, well, you're supposed to put a cover sheet on that fax, and you didn't put a cover sheet. And I'm like, it's going to your boss. I figured they'd know it was coming from me right? They're, they're so hung up on the details of the law, the legality. Everything's got to be right because it's got to be true. And it's got to, you know, what's interesting with Jesus is he's completely true. And yet he's coupled with genuine love at the same time. And I, And like I said before, we ain't never seen anybody like that. He is truly one of a kind. And not only that, but he desires people's best. Not And knowing that truth by definition is your best. That's each one of our best. And this is what he desires. And so this is, again, just a small look into who Jesus Christ was and is. He had this fully balanced emotional character that exhibited it in such ways that were unique and special. And this is what John cannot take his eyes off of. And so, you know, my prayer for us this morning, I want that to be true of you too. I want that to be true of you as you go through life where you just cannot get enough of Jesus Christ. You're mesmerized by who he is, what he's done, how he continues to care and love for you, even in this day. Now, let me close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the word, Jesus Christ, and everything that he means to us, everything that he is. Lord, I pray for those listening, uh, even here in person, those online. We we pray that, uh, that we would all be mesmerized by your dear son. We know that you're completely satisfied with him. We want to experience that in our daily lives. Those of us who have never trusted in him for salvation, may today be the day that they were convinced by your word that what Jesus did for them 2,000 years ago is enough to satisfy your justice and your wrath on their behalf. For those who have already trusted in Christ, I find that we would just find in Jesus everything that satisfies our soul. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.